Chapter Sixteen of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, June two thousand seven. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixteen. England under Edward the First, called Longshanks. It was now the year of our Lord one thousand two hundred and seventy-two, and Prince Edward, the heir to the throne, being away in the Holy Land, knew nothing of his father's death. The barons, however, proclaimed him king immediately after the royal funeral, and the people very willingly consented. Since most men knew too well by this time what the horrors of a contest for the crown were, so King Edward the First called, in a not very complimentary manner, Longshanks, because of the slenderness of his legs, was peacefully accepted by the English nation. His legs had need to be strong, however long and thin they were, for they had to support him through many difficulties on the fiery sands of Asia. Where his small force of soldiers fainted, died, deserted, and seemed to melt away, but his prowess made light of it, and he said, "I will go on if I go on with no other follower than my groom." A prince of this spirit gave the Turks a deal of trouble. He stormed Nazareth, at which place, of all places on earth, I am sorry to relate, he made a frightful slaughter of innocent people, and then he went to Acre. Where he got a truce of ten years from the Sultan, he had very nearly lost his life in Acre, through the treachery of a Saracen noble called the Emir of Jaffa, who, making the pretence that he had some idea of turning Christian and wanted to know all about that religion, sent a trusty messenger to Edward very often with a dagger in his sleeve. At last, one Friday in Whitsun week, when it was very hot, and all the sandy prospect lay beneath the blazing sun. Burnt up like a great overdone biscuit, and Edward was lying on a couch, dressed for coolness in only a loose robe. The messenger, with his chocolate-coloured face and his bright dark eyes and white teeth, came creeping in with a letter and kneeled down like a tame tiger. But the moment Edward stretched out his hand to take the letter, the tiger made a spring at his heart. He was quick, but Edward was quick too. He seized the traitor by his chocolate throat, threw him to the ground, and slew him with the very dagger he had drawn. The weapon had struck Edward in the arm, and although the wound itself was slight, it threatened to be mortal, for the blade of the dagger had been smeared with poison. Thanks, however, to a better surgeon than was often to be found in those times, and to some wholesome herbs, and above all to his faithful wife Eleanor, who devotedly nursed him. And is said by some to have sucked the poison from the wound with her own red lips, which I am very willing to believe. Edward soon recovered and was sound again. As the king, his father, had sent entreaties to him to return home, he now began the journey. He had got as far as Italy when he met messengers who brought him intelligence of the king's death. Hearing that all was quiet at home, he made no haste to return to his own dominions. But paid a visit to the Pope, and went in state through various Italian towns, where he was welcomed with acclamations as a mighty champion of the cross from the Holy Land, and where he received presents of purple mantles and prancing horses, 
and went along in great triumph. The shouting people little knew that he was the last English monarch who would ever embark in a crusade, or that within twenty years every conquest which the Christians had made in the Holy Land, at the cost of so much blood, would be won back by the Turks. But all this came to pass. There was, and there is, an old town standing in a plain in France, called Chalon. When the king was coming towards this place on his way to England, a wily French lord, called the Count of Chalon, sent him a polite challenge to come with his knights and hold a fair tournament with the Count and his knights, and make a day of it with sword and lance. It was represented to the king that the Count of Chalon was not to be trusted, and that, instead of a holiday fight for mere show and in good humour, he secretly meant a real battle, in which the English should be defeated by superior force. The king, however, nothing afraid, went to the appointed place on the appointed day with a thousand followers. When the count came with two thousand and attacked the English in earnest, the English rushed at them with such valour that the count's men and the count's horses soon began to be tumbled down all over the field. The count himself seized the king round the neck, but the king tumbled him out of his saddle in return for the compliment, and, jumping from his own horse and standing over him, beat away at his iron armour like a blacksmith hammering on his anvil. Even when the count owned himself defeated and offered his sword, the king would not do him the honour to take it, but made him yield it up to a common soldier. There had been such fury shown in this fight that it was afterwards called the Little Battle of Chalon. The English were very well disposed to be proud of their king after these adventures, so when he landed at Dover in the year 1274, being then thirty-six years old, and went on to Westminster, where he and his good queen were crowned with great magnificence, splendid rejoicings took place. For the coronation feast there were provided, among other eatables, four hundred oxen, four hundred sheep, four hundred and fifty pigs, eighteen wild boars, three hundred flitches of bacon, and twenty thousand fowls. The fountains and conduits in the street flowed with red and white wine instead of water. The rich citizens hung silks and cloths of the brightest colours out of their windows to increase the beauty of the show, and threw out gold and silver by whole handfuls to make scrambles for the crowd. In short, there was such eating and drinking, such music and capering, such a ringing of bells and tossing of caps, such a shouting and singing and revelling, as the narrow overhanging streets of old London City had not witnessed for many a long day. All the people were merry, except the poor Jews, who, trembling within their houses, and scarcely daring to peep out, began to foresee that they would have to find the money for this joviality sooner or later. To dismiss this sad subject of the Jews for the present, I am sorry to add that in this reign they were most unmercifully pillaged. They were hanged in great numbers, on accusations of having clipped the king's coin, which all kinds of people had done. They were heavily taxed, they were disgracefully badged, they were, on one day, thirteen years after the coronation, taken up with their wives and children, and thrown into beastly prisons, until they purchased their release by paying to the king twelve thousand pounds. Finally, every kind of property belonging to them was seized by the king, except so little as would defray the charge of their taking themselves away into foreign countries. 
Many years elapsed before the hope of gain induced any of their race to return to England, where they had been treated so heartlessly, and had suffered so much. If King Edward I had been as bad a king to Christians as he was to Jews, he would have been bad indeed. But he was, in general, a wise and great monarch, under whom the country much improved. He had no love for the great charter, few kings had, through many, many years, but he had high qualities. The first bold object which he conceived when he came home was to unite under one sovereign England, Scotland, and Wales, the two last of which countries had each a little king of its own, about whom the people were always quarrelling and fighting, and making a prodigious disturbance, a great deal more than he was worth. In the course of King Edward's reign he was engaged, besides, in a war with France. To make these quarrels clearer, we will separate their histories, and take them thus. Wales first, France second, Scotland third. Llewellyn was the Prince of Wales. He had been on the side of the barons in the reign of the stupid old king, but had afterwards sworn allegiance to him. When King Edward came to the throne, Llewellyn was required to swear allegiance to him also, which he refused to do. The king being crowned and in his own dominions, three times more required Llewellyn to come and do homage, and three times more Llewellyn said he would rather not. He was going to be married to Eleanor de Montfort, a young lady of the family mentioned in the last reign, and it chanced that this young lady, coming from France with her youngest brother Emmerich, was taken by an English ship, and was ordered by the English king to be detained. Upon this the quarrel came to a head. The king went with his fleet to the coast of Wales, where, so encompassing Llewellyn, that he could only take refuge in the bleak mountain of Snowdon, in which no provisions could reach him, he was soon starved into an apology, and into a treaty of peace, and into paying the expenses of the war. The king, however, forgave him some of the hardest conditions of the treaty, and consented to his marriage, and he now thought he had reduced Wales to obedience. But the Welsh, although they were naturally a gentle, quiet, pleasant people, who liked to receive strangers in their cottages among the mountains, and to set before them with free hospitality whatever they had to eat and drink, and to play to them on their harps, and sing their native ballads to them, were a people of great spirit when their blood was up. Englishmen, after this affair, began to be insolent in Wales, and to assume the air of masters, and the Welsh pride could not bear it. Moreover, they believed in that unlucky old Merlin, some of whose unlucky old prophecies somebody always seemed doomed to remember when there was a chance of its doing harm. And just at this time some blind old gentleman with a harp and a long white beard, who was an excellent person, but had become of an unknown age and tedious, burst out with a declaration that Merlin had predicted that when English money had become round, a Prince of Wales would be crowned in London." Now King Edward had recently forbidden the English penny to be cut into halves and quarters for halfpence and farthings, and had actually introduced a round coin. Therefore the Welsh people said this was the time Merlin meant, and rose accordingly. King Edward had brought over Prince David, Llewellyn's brother, by heaping favours upon him. But he was the first to revolt, being perhaps troubled in his conscience. One stormy night, he surprised the castle of Howarden, in possession of which an English nobleman had been left, killed the whole garrison, 
and carried off the nobleman a prisoner to Snowdon. Upon this the Welsh people rose like one man, King Edward with his army, marching from Worcester to the Menai Strait, crossed it, near to where the wonderful tubular iron bridge now, in days so different, makes a passage for railway trains, by a bridge of boats that enabled forty men to march abreast. He subdued the island of Anglesey, and sent his men forward to observe the enemy. The sudden appearance of the Welsh created a panic among them, and they fell back to the bridge. The tide had in the meantime risen and separated the boats. The Welsh pursuing them, they were driven into the sea, and there they sunk, in their heavy iron armour, by thousands. After this victory Llewellyn, helped by the severe winter weather of Wales, gained another battle, but the king, ordering a portion of his English army to advance through South Wales, and catch him between two foes, and Llewellyn bravely turning to meet this new enemy, he was surprised and killed, very meanly, for he was unarmed and defenceless. His head was struck off and sent to London, where it was fixed upon the tower, encircled with a wreath, some say of ivy, some say of willow, some say of silver, to make it look like a ghastly coin in ridicule of the prediction. David, however, still held out for six months, though eagerly sought after by the king, and hunted by his own countrymen. One of them finally betrayed him with his wife and children. He was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, and from that time this became the established punishment of traitors in England, a punishment wholly without excuse, as being revolting, vile, and cruel, after its object is dead, and which has no sense in it, as its only real degradation, and that nothing can blot out, is to the country that permits on any consideration such abominable barbarity. Wales was now subdued, the queen giving birth to a young prince in the castle of Carnarvon. The king showed him to the Welsh people as their countryman, and called him Prince of Wales, a title that has ever since been borne by the heir apparent to the English throne, which that little prince soon became by the death of his elder brother. The king did better things for the Welsh than that, by improving their laws and encouraging their trade. Disturbances still took place, chiefly occasioned by the avarice and pride of the English lords, on whom Welsh lands and castles had been bestowed. But they were subdued, and the country never rose again. There is a legend that to prevent the people from being incited to rebellion by the songs of their bards and harpers, Edward had them all put to death. Some of them may have fallen among other men who held out against the king, but this general slaughter is, I think, a fancy of the harpers themselves, who, I dare say, made a song about it many years afterwards, and sang it by the Welsh firesides until it came to be believed. The foreign war of the reign of Edward I arose in this way. The crews of two vessels, one a Norman ship and the other an English ship, happened to go to the same place in their boats to fill their casks with fresh water. Being rough, angry fellows, they began to quarrel, and then to fight, the English with their fists, the Normans with their knives, and in the fight a Norman was killed. The Norman crew, instead of revenging themselves upon those English sailors with whom they had quarrelled, who were too strong for them, I suspect, took to their ship again in a great rage, attacked the first English ship they met, laid hold of an unoffending merchant who happened to be on board, and brutally hanged him in the rigging of their own vessel, with a dog at his feet. 
This so enraged the English sailors that there was no restraining them, and whenever and wherever English sailors met Norman sailors, they fell upon each other tooth and nail. The Irish and Dutch sailors took part with the English, the French and Guianese sailors helped the Normans, and thus the greater part of the mariners sailing over the sea became in their way as violent and raging as the sea itself when it is disturbed. King Edward's fame had been so high abroad that he had been chosen to decide a difference between France and another foreign power, and had lived upon the continent three years. At first neither he nor the French King Philip, the good Louis had been dead some time, interfered in these quarrels, but when a fleet of eighty English ships engaged and utterly defeated a Norman fleet of two hundred, in a pitched battle fought round a ship at anchor, in which no quarter was given, the matter became too serious to be passed over. King Edward, as Duke of Guienne, was summoned to present himself before the King of France, at Paris, and answer for the damage done by his sailor subjects. At first he sent the Bishop of London as his representative, and then his brother Edmund, who was married to the French Queen's mother. I am afraid Edmund was an easy man, and allowed himself to be talked over by his charming relations, the French court ladies. At all events he was induced to give up his brother's dukedom for forty days, as a mere form, the French king said, to satisfy his honour, and he was so very much astonished, when the time was out, to find that the French king had no idea of giving it up again, that I should not wonder if it hastened his death, which soon took place. King Edward was a king to win his foreign dukedom back, if it could be won by energy and valour. He raised a large army, renounced his allegiance as Duke of Guienne, and crossed the sea to carry war into France. Before any important battle was fought, however, a truce was agreed upon for two years, and in the course of that time the Pope effected a reconciliation. King Edward, who was now a widower, having lost his affectionate and good wife Eleanor, married the French king's sister, Margaret, and the Prince of Wales was contracted to the French king's daughter, Isabella. Out of bad things, good things sometimes arise. Out of this hanging of the innocent merchant, and the bloodshed and strife it caused, there came to be established one of the greatest powers that the English people now possess. The preparations for the war being very expensive, and King Edward greatly wanting money, and being very arbitrary in his ways of raising it, some of the barons began firmly to oppose him. Two of them, in particular, Humphrey Bohun, Earl of Hereford, and Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk, were so stout against him, that they maintained he had no right to command them to head his forces in Guienne, and flatly refused to go there. "'By heaven, Sir Earl,' said the King to the Earl of Hereford, in a great passion, "'you shall either go or be hanged.' "'By heaven, Sir King,' replied the Earl, "'I will neither go, nor yet will I be hanged.' And both he and the other Earl sturdily left the court, attended by many lords." The king tried every means of raising money. He taxed the clergy, in spite of all the pope said to the contrary, and when they refused to pay, reduced them to submission, by saying, Very well, then they had no claim upon the government for protection, and any man might plunder them who would, which a good many men were very ready to do, and very readily did, and which the clergy found too losing a game to be played at long. He seized all the wool and leather in the hands of the merchants, 
promising to pay for it some fine day, and he set a tax upon the exportation of wool, which was so unpopular among the traders that it was called the evil toll. But all would not do. The barons, led by those two great earls, declared any taxes imposed without the consent of Parliament unlawful, and the Parliament refused to impose taxes until the king should confirm afresh the two great charters and should solemnly declare in writing that there was no power in the country to raise money from the people evermore but the power of Parliament representing all ranks of the people. The king was very unwilling to diminish his own power by allowing this great privilege in the Parliament, but there was no help for it, and he at last complied. We shall come to another king by and by, who might have saved his head from rolling off if he had profited by this example. The people gained other benefits in Parliament from the good sense and wisdom of this king. Many of the laws were much improved, provision was made for the greater safety of travellers, and the apprehension of thieves and murderers, the priests were prevented from holding too much land, and so becoming too powerful, and justices of the peace were first appointed, though not at first under that name, in various parts of the country. And now we come to Scotland, which was the great and lasting trouble of the reign of King Edward I. About thirteen years after King Edward's coronation, Alexander III, the King of Scotland, died of a fall from his horse. He had been married to Margaret, King Edward's sister. All their children being dead, the Scottish crown became the right of a young princess, only eight years old, the daughter of Eric, King of Norway, who had married a daughter of the deceased sovereign. King Edward proposed that the maiden of Norway, as this princess was called, should be engaged to be married to his eldest son. But unfortunately, as she was coming over to England, she fell sick, and landing on one of the Orkney Islands, died there. A great commotion immediately began in Scotland, where as many as thirteen noisy claimants to the vacant throne started up and made a general confusion. King Edward, being much renowned for his sagacity and justice, it seems to have been agreed to refer the dispute to him. He accepted the trust, and went with an army to the borderland, where England and Scotland joined. There he called upon the Scottish gentlemen to meet him at the castle of Norham, on the English side of the river Tweed, and to that castle they came. But before he would take any step in the business, he required those Scottish gentlemen, one and all, to do homage to him as their superior lord, and when they hesitated, he said, By holy Edward, whose crown I wear, I will have my rights, or I will die in maintaining them. The Scottish gentlemen, who had not expected this, were disconcerted, and asked for three weeks to think about it. At the end of three weeks, another meeting took place, on a green plain on the Scottish side of the river. Of all the competitors for the Scottish throne, there were only two who had any real claim, in right of their near kindred to the royal family. These were John Balliol and Robert Bruce, and the right was, I have no doubt, on the side of John Balliol. At this particular meeting, John Balliol was not present, but Robert Bruce was, and on Robert Bruce being formally asked whether he acknowledged the King of England for his superior lord, he answered, plainly and distinctly, yes, he did. Next day John Balliol appeared, and said the same. This point settled, some arrangements were made for inquiring into their titles. 
The inquiry occupied a pretty long time, more than a year. While it was going on, King Edward took the opportunity of making a journey through Scotland, and calling upon the Scottish people of all degrees to acknowledge themselves his vassals, or be imprisoned until they did. In the meanwhile, commissioners were appointed to conduct the inquiry. A parliament was held at Berwick about it. The two claimants were heard at full length, and there was a vast amount of talking. At last, in the great hall of the castle of Berwick, the king gave judgment in favour of John Balliol, who, consenting to receive his crown by the King of England's favour and permission, was crowned at Scone, in an old stone chair which had been used for ages in the abbey there, at the coronations of Scottish kings. Then King Edward caused the great seal of Scotland, used since the late king's death, to be broken in four pieces, and placed in the English treasury, and considered that he now had Scotland, according to the common saying, under his thumb. Scotland had a strong will of its own yet, however. King Edward, determined that the Scottish king should not forget he was his vassal, summoned him repeatedly to come and defend himself and his judges before the English Parliament when appeals from the decisions of Scottish courts of justice were being heard. At length John Balliol, who had no great heart of his own, had so much heart put into him by the brave spirit of the Scottish people, who took this as a national insult, that he refused to come any more. Thereupon the king further required him to help him in his war abroad, which was then in progress, and to give up, as security for his good behaviour in future, the three strong Scottish castles of Jedburgh, Roxburgh, and Berwick. Nothing of this being done, on the contrary, the Scottish people concealing their king among their mountains in the highlands, and showing a determination to resist, Edward marched to Berwick with an army of thirty thousand foot and four thousand horse, took the castle, and slew its whole garrison and the inhabitants of the town as well, men, women, and children. Lord Warren, Earl of Surrey, then went on to the castle of Dunbar, before which a battle was fought, and the whole Scottish army defeated with great slaughter. The victory being complete, the Earl of Surrey was left as guardian of Scotland. The principal offices in that kingdom were given to Englishmen, the more powerful Scottish nobles were obliged to come and live in England. The Scottish crown and scepter were brought away, and even the old stone chair was carried off and placed in Westminster Abbey, where you may see it now. Balliol had the Tower of London lent him for a residence, with permission to range about it within a circle of twenty miles. Three years afterwards he was allowed to go to Normandy, where he had estates, and where he passed the remaining six years of his life, far more happily, I dare say, than he had lived for a long while in angry Scotland. Now there was, in the west of Scotland, a gentleman of small fortune named William Wallace, the second son of a Scottish knight. He was a man of great size and great strength. He was very brave and daring. When he spoke to a body of his countrymen, he could rouse them in a wonderful manner by the power of his burning words. He loved Scotland dearly, and he hated England with his utmost might. The domineering conduct of the English, who now held the places of trust in Scotland, made them as intolerable to the proud Scottish people as they had been, under similar circumstances, to the Welsh. And no man in all Scotland regarded them with so much smothered rage as William Wallace. One day an Englishman in office, little knowing what he was, affronted him. Wallace instantly struck him dead, and taking refuge among the rocks and hills, 
and there joining with his countryman, Sir William Douglas, who was also in arms against King Edward, became the most resolute and undaunted champion of a people struggling for their independence that ever lived upon the earth. The English guardian of the kingdom fled before him, and thus encouraged, the Scottish people revolted everywhere, and fell upon the English without mercy. The Earl of Surrey, by the King's commands, raised all the power of the border counties, and two English armies poured into Scotland. Only one chief, in the face of those armies, stood by Wallace, who, with a force of forty thousand men, awaited the invaders at a place on the river Forth, within two miles of Stirling. Across the river there was only one poor wooden bridge, called the Bridge of Kildene, so narrow that but two men could cross it abreast. With his eyes upon this bridge, Wallace posted the greater part of his men among some rising grounds, and waited calmly. When the English army came up on the opposite bank of the river, messengers were sent forward to offer terms. Wallace sent them back with a defiance, in the name of the freedom of Scotland. Some of the officers of the Earl of Surrey, in command of the English, with their eyes also on the bridge, advised him to be discreet, and not hasty. He, however, urged to immediate battle by some other officers, and particularly by Cressingham, King Edward's treasurer, and a rash man, gave the word of command to advance. One thousand English crossed the bridge, two abreast, the Scottish troops were as motionless as stone images. Two thousand English crossed, three thousand, four thousand, five. Not a feather all this time had been seen to stir among the Scottish bonnets. Now they all fluttered. "'Forward, one party, to the foot of the bridge!' cried Wallace, "'and let no more English cross. The rest down with me on the five thousand who have come over, and cut them all to pieces.' It was done in the sight of the whole remainder of the English army, who could give no help. Cressingham himself was killed, and the Scotch made whips for the horses of his skin. King Edward was abroad at this time, and during the successes on the Scottish side which followed, and which enabled bold Wallace to win the whole country back again, and even to ravage the English borders. But after a few winter months the king returned, and took the field with more than his usual energy. One night, when a kick from his horse, as they both lay on the ground together, broke two of his ribs, and a cry arose that he was killed, he leaped into his saddle, regardless of the pain he suffered, and rode through the camp. Day then appearing, he gave the word, still, of course, in that bruised and aching state, forward, and led his army on to near Falkirk, where the Scottish forces were seen drawn up on some stony ground behind a morass. Here he defeated Wallace, and killed fifteen thousand of his men. With the shattered remainder, Wallace drew back to Stirling, but, being pursued, set fire to the town that it might give no help to the English, and escaped. The inhabitants of Perth afterwards set fire to their houses for the same reason, and the king, unable to find provisions, was forced to withdraw his army. Another Robert Bruce, the grandson of him who had disputed the Scottish crown with Balliol, was now in arms against the king, that elder Bruce being dead, and also John Comyn, Balliol's nephew. These two young men might agree in opposing Edward, but could agree in nothing else, as they were rivals for the throne of Scotland. Probably it was because they knew this, and knew what troubles must arise, even if they could hope to get the better of the great English king, that the principal Scottish people applied to the Pope for his interference. 
the Pope, on the principle of losing nothing for want of trying to get it, very coolly claimed that Scotland belonged to him, but this was a little too much, and the Parliament in a friendly manner told him so. In the springtime of the year 1303, the King sent Sir John Seagrave, whom he made Governor of Scotland, with twenty thousand men, to reduce the rebels. Sir John was not as careful as he should have been, but encamped at Roslyn, near Edinburgh, with his army divided into three parts. The Scottish forces saw their advantage, fell on each part separately, defeated each, and killed all the prisoners. Then came the king himself once more, as soon as a great army could be raised. He passed through the whole north of Scotland, laying waste whatsoever came in his way, and he took up his winter quarters at Dunfermline. The Scottish cause now looked so hopeless that Comyn and the other nobles made submission and received their pardons. Wallace alone stood out. He was invited to surrender, though on no distinct pledge that his life should be spared, but he still defied the ireful king, and lived among the steep crags of the highland glens, where the eagles made their nests, and where the mountain torrents roared, and the white snow was deep, and the bitter winds blew round his unsheltered head, as he lay through many a pitch-dark night, wrapped up in his plaid. Nothing could break his spirit, nothing could lower his courage, nothing could induce him to forget or to forgive his country's wrongs. Even when the castle of Stirling, which had long held out, was besieged by the king with every kind of military engine then in use, even when the lead upon cathedral roofs was taken down to help to make them, even when the king, though an old man, commanded in the siege as if he were a youth, being so resolved to conquer, even when the brave garrison, then found with amazement to be not two hundred people, including several ladies, were starved and beaten out, and were made to submit on their knees, and with every form of disgrace that could aggravate their sufferings, even then, when there was not a ray of hope in Scotland, William Wallace was as proud and firm as if he had beheld the powerful and relentless Edward lying dead at his feet. Who betrayed William Wallace in the end is not quite certain. That he was betrayed, probably by an intendant, is too true. He was taken to the castle of Dumbarton, under Sir John Menteith, and thence to London, where the great fame of his bravery and resolution attracted immense concourses of people to behold him. He was tried in Westminster Hall, with a crown of laurel on his head. It is supposed because he was reported to have said that he ought to wear, or that he would wear, a crown there, and was found guilty as a robber, a murderer, and a traitor. What they called a robber, he said to those who tried him, he was, because he had taken spoil from the king's men. What they called a murderer, he was, because he had slain an insolent Englishman. What they called a traitor, he was not, for he had never sworn allegiance to the king, and had ever scorned to do it. He was dragged at the tails of horses to West Smithfield, and there hanged on a high gallows, torn open before he was dead, beheaded, and quartered. His head was set upon a pole on London Bridge, his right arm was sent to Newcastle, his left arm to Berwick, his legs to Perth and Aberdeen. But if King Edward had had his body cut into inches, and had sent every separate inch to a separate town, he could not have dispersed it half so far and wide as his fame. Wallace will be remembered in songs and stories, while there are songs and stories in the English tongue, and Scotland will hold him dear while her lakes and mountains last. 
Released from this dreaded enemy, the king made a fairer plan of government for Scotland, divided the offices of honour among Scottish gentlemen and English gentlemen, forgave past offences, and thought in his old age that his work was done. But he deceived himself. Coleman and Bruce conspired, and made an appointment to meet at Dumfries, in the church of the Minorites. There is a story that Coleman was false to Bruce, and had informed against him to the king, that Bruce was warned of his danger, and the necessity of flight, by receiving one night as he sat at supper, from his friend the Earl of Gloucester, twelve pennies and a pair of spurs, that as he was riding angrily to keep his appointment, through a snowstorm, with his horse's shoes reversed, that he might not be tracked, he met an evil-looking serving-man, a messenger of Coman, whom he killed, and concealed in whose dress he found letters that proved Coman's treachery. However this may be, they were likely enough to quarrel in any case, being hot-headed rivals, and whatever they quarrelled about, they certainly did quarrel in the church where they met, and Bruce drew his dagger and stabbed Coman, who fell upon the pavement. When Bruce came out, pale and disturbed, the friends who were waiting for him asked, what was the matter? I think I have killed Coman, said he. You only think so? returned one of them. I will make sure, and going into the church and finding him alive, stabbed him again and again. Knowing that the king would never forgive this new deed of violence, the party then declared Bruce king of Scotland, got him crowned at Scone, without the chair, and set up the rebellious standard once again. When the king heard of it he kindled with fiercer anger than he had ever shown yet. He caused the Prince of Wales and two hundred and seventy of the young nobility to be knighted. The trees in the temple gardens were cut down to make room for their tents, and they watched their armour all night, according to the old usage, some in the temple church, some in Westminster Abbey, and at the public feast which then took place he swore by heaven, and by two swans covered with gold network which his minstrels placed upon the table, that he would avenge the death of Coman, and would punish the false Bruce. And before all the company he charged the prince his son, in case that he should die before accomplishing his vow, not to bury him until it was fulfilled. Next morning the prince and the rest of the young knights rode away to the border country to join the English army, and the king, now weak and sick, followed in a horse-litter. Bruce, after losing a battle, and undergoing many dangers and much misery, fled to Ireland, where he lay concealed through the winter. That winter Edward passed in hunting down and executing Bruce's relations and adherents, sparing neither youth nor age, and showing no touch of pity or sign of mercy. In the following spring Bruce reappeared and gained some victories. In these frays both sides were grievously cruel. For instance, Bruce's two brothers, being taken captives, desperately wounded, were ordered by the king to instant execution. Bruce's friend, Sir John Douglas, taking his own castle of Douglas out of the hands of an English lord, roasted the dead bodies of the slaughtered garrison in a great fire made of every movable within it, which dreadful cookery his men called the Douglas larder. Bruce, still successful, however, drove the Earl of Pembroke and the Earl of Gloucester into the castle of Ayr, and laid siege to it. The king, who had been laid up all winter, but had directed the army from his sickbed, now advanced to Carlisle, and there, causing the litter in which he had travelled, to be placed in the cathedral as an offering to heaven, mounted his horse once more, and for the last time. 
He was now sixty-nine years old, and had reigned thirty-five years. He was so ill that in four days he could go no more than six miles. Still, even at that pace, he went on and resolutely kept his face towards the border. At length he lay down at the village of Burrow-upon-Sands, and there, telling those around him to impress upon the prince that he was to remember his father's vow, and was never to rest until he had thoroughly subdued Scotland, he yielded up his last breath. End of chapter 16